want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, still hearts get Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound Insights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going? Good. Um, got some rather exciting TV news this week. Or I guess it was bittersweet, but also exciting regarding Daredevil. So uh, they got a new showrunner who was somebody that we absolutely love. And that means that he can't do his previous pitch of a show, but oh well. Yes, uh, for those who don't know, that that is Stephen Denight, uh, who did Spartacus, which we both love, and uh, also was theoretically making a show for another show for stars called Incursion that sounded awesome, but <laughs> is apparently dead. So now he will be running uh, Daredevil. The previous showrunner was Drew Goddard, another uh, Mutant Enemy alum. So that's sort of a odd, you know, connection there. But we'll see what happens with that when we get the next wave of Marvel TV shows coming. Was is that next year or is that this fall? When is that happening? They're shooting the first couple this year, so I imagine we'll get them starting next year. Okay, it was a big topic of conversation this week. This this wonderful week of television. Holy crap! <laughs> it was. It was okay. It was, it was okay, you know. Just a few things that were awesome. Uh, we talked with you guys about all of that television. We also talked with Libby Hill of TV on the Internet and so many other places about Mad Men. That'll be coming at the end of the podcast. We're doing, a, I guess, a half-season spotlight for that uh, instead of our usual DVD shelf. But from you guys, we heard uh, many different things. First of all, from Burt Cooper's Shoes on the on the website thank you so much that's an awesome name we uh, heard i appreciate you choosing a current currently active show like the good wife to delve into that was a fun discussion one thing i never understood this season was the moment where carrie tells alicia that he's dating kalinda and alicia remarks that she thought kalinda was gay carrie corrects her with bye surely alicia already knew that right what was she thinking there p.s i suggest you ask miles McNutt to come on to talk about uh, any of the shows he likes and covers, he seems perfectly suited to a podcast like yours and often has interesting thoughts. And we agree, or I agree specifically because Miles McNaught came on last year to talk about Strike Back with us, which was so much fun. So yeah, we'll we'll see whether we are able to have him back on this year. It would be, it would be great, but that is, you know, there's so many wonderful guests that we're able to have on, on the podcast and we're very grateful for all of them. But this uh, thought about uh, The Good Wife, that was completely fine for me because we've never seen her in a particularly uh, successful relationship, well, really ever, but specifically with a, with a man. The only person we've seen her in a in a physical relationship with, you know, with a man was her ex husband. And the less said about that storyline, the better. Um, now, you have only seen a handful of episodes this season uh, of of The Good Wife. What any thoughts on on this topic? I can't. No, I'm sorry. I'll have to refrain. But, uh, yeah, it is – I was fine with it because she has been so very defined by the show in terms to her – in regards to her relationship with women. And considering that Alicia and Kalinda have been on the outs for years now and they didn't really get – you know, Kalinda never got personal with Alicia. It, it 
made complete sense to me that this would not be a topic that they had particularly discussed. So I, I see where you're coming from, Burt Cooper's shoes, but uh, that is not something that really stood out to me. We talked with a bunch of you guys on Twitter this week as well. First of all, I wanted to do a quick plug for the AV Club's tournament of episodes that they're doing because right now you can nominate. You can vote for nominated episodes, and I'm, I'm putting all of my support behind Adventure Time's Lemon Hope, so I wanted to put the call out there for people to go over to the AV Club and vote for, for Adventure Time. Uh, now, did I know that you nominated uh, Banshee. Did that make it through? It did not, sadly, but that was kind of expected. Of the ones that are up there right now for voting, I think my, my vote came down pretty close to uh, Vets for Enlisted, which was probably my favorite episode of that series, and, and Six Minutes for The Killing, and I ended up going with Six Minutes. So there's a lot of great episodes up for contention, so go check that out if you are interested in such things. Spoke with, for like a day, with Zach and Emily about musicals. I love musicals, of course. That'll tie in with our discussion later at the end of the podcast. Uh, talked Good Wife with Noel, Beth, Mario, Corey, uh, Banshee a little bit, season two with Brian. The more I hear, the more I'm guessing I really do need to catch up with season two, with, with Banshee in general, but specifically season two. Do I need to watch season one, John, or can I just jump in at season two? I mean, uh, I say just watch season one. Plow through the first few episodes, which are not that good, and then it really picks up, and the back half of that first season is really, really wonderful. You like Strike Back, so I think that there are aspects there that you'll find similar. To me, Arrow and Banshee are kind of like splintered off parts of Spartacus and they both have different things that had to do with why I liked that show so much and so I can't imagine you not liking Banshee to some degree so I, I might very well be thoroughly disappointed but season two was tremendous through and through well, I'm going to have to try to f find time for it because I, I, I heard a lot about it last year, but I'm hearing even more this year. And I know you're a big fan, so I, that'll have to be something that I just sit down over the weekend sometime this summer and knock that out. Uh, talked about a little bit about platonic relationships on TV with Emma. That is one of my favorite topics right now. Supernatural with Amanda, Alex, and Tim. Hannibal with everyone, basically, but specifically Brian, Whitney, Mario, Kyle, Noel, Randy, Emily, Sparkletone, which I love that that Twitter name, Alicia Gaines, Emma, Jake, David, Martin, Julius, Paolo, Levi, Shaz, Travis, and Carl. We've gotten a lot of really great feedback. Uh, any thoughts on our Hannibal podcast? <laughs> it's, it's very long. It's super long. It's over two hours, guys. It's almost two and a half. It had to be that long, though, so that, that was one hell of a finale. Yeah, if you're curious why we're not talking about Hannibal on this podcast... It's because there's over two hours of us talking about it with Noel Kirkpatrick. Also in your Televerse feed and iTunes, also up at Sound on Sight. So that's where you can go for that. It was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for the positive feedback. We really appreciate it. Um, we talked to or Orphan Black with a bunch of people. Uh, Comic-Con with Andy. If you're going to be going to Comic-Con this year and uh, you're going to be around, let me know. I'll be headed out there in, in July, of course, and... I think there's a there's one or two meetups that I'll be headed to. So if if there are any Televerse listeners out there who uh, want to you know grab grab a drink sometime, let me know and we'll see if we can do some kind of a meetup. Um, the and who knows? Sean is talking. Maybe he'll drop by as well. I I am a Southern California native, so it would probably be bad on me if I didn't show up. 
we'll see what we can put together there. Uh, talk to the Americans quite a bit with Whitney, Noel, Emma. We're going to talk a little bit about that this week, but there is a discrepancy of, of, of critical opinion. There's a discordancy amongst the critical community about the Americans that I find incredibly interesting because uh, I, I just have loved this season. You've been more guarded about it. And, and I know that's a really common thing in the critical community right now. Any thoughts on that? Other than, you know, obviously what we're going to talk about the episode, particularly the finale later. Yeah. I'll, I'll outline my thoughts later. Um, the, the other guarded opinions that I've read though, have not entirely been like in line with some of the things that I think about. And so that to me is even more interesting in the fact that there's a division. Um, and it might, this might just be another case of unfortunate, like backlash to like, initial unanimous praise i think that that was kind of why i was guarded about orphan black and in, in the beginning of the first season because everybody was like oh my god this is the best show ever and i was like wait a second this is this is a pretty good show but, but hold on for a second um and and maybe that might be part of the reason why but uh yeah it really really good forum for discussion i think regarding the americans right now uh, also talked with uh, Carl about Fargo as and heard from Swedge on this as well. Swedge says, I think I'll be most curious to hear on this week's Televerse why you liked the Fargo episode. I thought it was a step down. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely talk about why we liked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just characterization and action. And it seems, for me, it's interesting. And, and I would love to hear more from you, Swedge, about that. Because for me, every element went up a notch in, in intensity and in execution and uh, in interest. So that is, that is interesting. I want to say maybe it has to do with like being a departure or a different version of the show. But even then, like the, the changes that it made still felt like aligned with what Fargo is. Yeah. It's, it, this is another one. If we do get, again, get that sort of starting the fracturing of, response to Fargo. I'll be very curious about uh, how that how that proceeds. Uh, talked to Grace Point with Mario, who's also not into it. That's the, the Broad Church remake. Spartacus with Kyle, John, and Christopher. I'm always up to talk Spartacus, guys. So just just throwing that out there. Talk some X-Men gender re- representations with Andrew and Caroline. So much fun. Mad Men with Justin. Game of Thrones with Carlos. I'm sure there's many other uh, conversations that we had this week that I'm, I'm forgetting. Any that you wanted to mention? Oh, that's about it. And yeah, if anybody ever wants to talk Spartacus... All the time. 24 hours. Always Spartacus. At Sound on Sight right now, it's still why you should be watching month for a few more days here. Depine just put up an article I wholeheartedly co-sign about Orphan Black. Uh, there's there's so many shows right now that are easily flying under the radar. An even bigger one is in The Flash. We'll talk about both of those shows later in the podcast. But as we head into the summer, if you're not sure you know, if you're of, of some of these other shows that there isn't something that you're particularly looking forward to, there are a number of shows that have aired this year already that have slipped through the cracks just because there is so much good TV. Um, I know, like I said, Banshee is one for me. You know, go over to Sound on Sight, read up on on the shows that our, our writers are recommending because there are a number that could give you a wonderful TV viewing summer, if nothing else. Co-signed. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> uh, right now, also, I'm reviewing Orphan Black at Sound on Sight. I'm co-reviewing Louie somewhat with Randy. Uh, you are covering... Uh, in the flesh, and most of my other stuff is finished, so I got some things upcoming that, that will be happening over the summer. 
And uh, so you can check out our further thoughts there as well as over at the AV Club. I'm reviewing Veep and then I'm very excited. I will be reviewing Blackadder every week this summer. I'm so excited. Have you seen Blackadder? I have. Yeah, I love Blackadder. Such a great show. So I'm very excited about that. Um, you guys can join me in the in the comments section to talk about the delights of, of uh, British class warfare comedy and just general silliness that goes with that. Any other uh, reviews you want you want to plug for TV Overmind and the like? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, people can find that stuff. I'll, I'll hopefully post that on Twitter. So it's back and forth between those two websites. Uh, the one that I'm most excited about doing this summer probably will be for Sound on Sight, and that's Wilfred when that comes back for its final season. Yeah, we'll be talking about that on the podcast as well. So I am uh, intrigued to see what will <laughs> happen in this final season. But, yeah, anyways, we, it, we do have – there's not as many shows this week, but there's a lot – to talk about in the few shows that there are so we should get started we'll take a break now and come back with our week in comedy comedy we are going to preview undateable and then talk a little inside amy schumer and louis elevator part four and part five. First, undateable i watched i watched three episodes of this guys uh because it is from bill lawrence creator of scrubs and so many other things that we like or that i like at least i watched the pilot i watched the second episode and i watched the sixth episode uh there's a few things that this show does right it's a it's sort of a buddy duo comedy it we have an odd couple who get stuck together because the one needs a new roommate and then uh you have the sort of the the confident but uh loner kind of guy as well as the insecure with the ladies but has a bunch of friends guy and then we see what happens now any of these shows obviously the title of the show is undateable the romantic exploits of our central characters are a big part of this show and i just was very disappointed in its treatment of its female characters for the most part now the actual women themselves when they're on screen when they're you know be you have dialogue and are doing things they are are well done well drawn i appreciate the actresses i appreciate the the characters but the treatment of the men of women in general is really disappointing. It's it, they're very much prizes to be won. They're not people. Even 
you know, there are a few steps that the show makes that I very much appreciate in regards to the central figure, uh, his crush on his employee. That's creepy, guys. It shouldn't, but we're not supposed to think about the fact that that's sexual harassment and creepy. But anyways, so the treatment of that is better. It takes a few turns that are better than I expected, so I was happy with that. But again, there's just this general, it doesn't matter who they are or, or what they're, you know, anything. We don't know anything about them, about their lives, about their personalities, other than they seem funny and cool, and they're certainly very hot. And uh, I expect better than that from Bill Lawrence. And so, I mean, there, you could do a lot, a lot worse, certainly. And it's not actively misogynistic in the way that so many other comedies of this ilk are. But I, I was still disappointed to not see, uh, to see this sort of prize approach to women and to not see it critiqued in a particularly meaningful way was disappointing. It could become a more interesting show. It really could develop. There is potential here, but I mean, I'm just tired of that in my, in my television. So of the Bill, of the Bill Lawrence comedies that haven't been super successful is where, where do you think that this ranks? You know what? I, I didn't catch enough of ground floor. Was that him? I feel like that was him. Yes. Yeah. I didn't catch enough of Ground Floor to really give an accurate read of that one. I know a lot of people really did like that one. I only saw a couple episodes. Um, I just keep going back to to Scrubs, where the women felt like people and felt and each of our characters seemed interested in them as people, right? In a way that they don't here, and it's just this the same insecure male. Uh, male gaze, I guess. This notion of, oh, I don't know how to talk to ladies and I'm going to make all my comedy about that and insecurity and being kind of creepy. You know, and then the other guy will say, oh, you're being creepy, but then be creepy himself. It's just, I don't know. I, I we just We need more female showrunners, basically, and writers, female writers, kind of working to counteract that impulse. Agreed. So, anyways... Next up is Inside Amy Schumer and uh, Tyler Perry's episode 208, which was uh, an interesting, uh, fun kind of title there. Uh, this episode for me, it was all about the return of Josh Charles. Fantastic. Uh, uh, any thoughts on Inside Amy Schumer this week? Well, speaking of Ground Floor, the one of the actors, I forget the actor's names, but he was in that sketch where they're looking through uh, the on-demand and he ends up watching Pitch Perfect after Amy has left. Yeah, a couple of these were really fantastic. Uh, I was less keen on this week's deep dive, but otherwise, like, uh, The Nurses, I thought was very, very good in concept, and I, I was glad to see that. Okay. Yeah, th that one didn't work as much for me. I was getting kind of frustrated with that representation, but, um, but I, I, again, I appreciate the sort of ridiculous turn it takes at the end, and... Uh... Yeah, there's 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 quite a bit to like here, and that Pitch Perfect sketch, like you say, did was that was a very nice button there. I like that they didn't go to the oh he's gonna just start porn when she leaves, like which is kind of I don't know why I was expecting that. I should know better from Amy Schumer, but uh, but no, I, I enjoyed this episode. It was one of my I think it was one of the more consistent they've had in a while. But in general, this week in comedy for me is all again about Louis. So shall we dive in? Let's do it. Elevator Part 4 and Part 5 of what is a six-part story. So we're, you know, past the midway point here. We're getting towards the end of it. What did you think of these two episodes? They're a bit uh, a bit more 
esoteric, maybe, than the show's been to this point. No kidding. Like, right from the beginning with these news reports that are just so out there and immediately ground these episodes in its own version of realism or unrealism. <laughs> it's very timely as well because uh, the playoffs are still going on and to have a, a fake report about LeBron James dying will please a lot of people in Indiana who are losing to the Heat right now. Uh, look, I don't even know where to begin here. Um, Let's start with uh, Flashback Louie and Flashback Jan. Did that work for you? Here's the thing. I want it. I, like, I get what they're going for, but it, re- it didn't work for me. And I feel like a bad Louie fan for saying that it didn't work for me. Like, I feel like I should be able to, to go with, you know, excursions like this. But mm-hmm. as much as I, you know, especially as the scene progressed, I could see that actor Connor O'Malley really sort of channeling the, the different ticks and gestures and elements of performance that we get from Louis C.K., but I wasn't willing, I mean, it felt so totally different to see anybody other than C.K. in that central role. The the performance was what really anchored it for me, because the, the nuance to mimicking Louis' inflections was, like, perfect, and, and everything in his delivery was surprisingly and eerily good. Uh, but yeah, in, in terms of, like, how it functioned in the episode, I, I'm not particularly sure either. I guess I was just willing to go with it because it's Louis, and um, I, I had to look at the, the credits at the end to like for sure see that that was a young Janet rather than this being some kind of like flashback fantasy or if this was somebody who came previous to Janet and I don't know like there are, there are little details that I could point to like the the sliding door being closed initially and she's speaking and we don't really understand what's going on necessarily or at least I didn't and that fit in with kind of what these episodes have been doing lately and yet <laughs> it it very much felt like I was out at sea kind of on a raft not with really much to cling on to other than just I found the that situation and how they handled that divorce and breakup really entertaining and and a very kind of Louie way of doing that. Yeah, it is. It is very Louie. And I, I agree that scene with the sliding door was particularly effective, that moment there. This did feel very, like you said, this felt very Louie that, you know, they're about to get divorced and then it's implied heavily that she, that, that last goodbye sex is how she got pregnant and then they stayed together for another five years or something, you know, so to to the point where the two girls were old enough that the younger girl was three. And then that's when they got divorced. And it's, yeah. And I also, because we know so little about Louis in the middle of his, we know somewhat about his growing up with his brother, a little bit there um, and his sister, but we don't know that much about the middle. So he could have another ex-wife that we've just never seen before. So I, you know, and, and she specifically calls him Louie, but he doesn't specifically call her Janet, which I noted in that scene. So I think that, because obviously having her played by a, a white actress in the past and an African-American actress in the in the present is a dis- distinct choice. And I actually really enjoy that. I enjoy that, that uh, what it says about her and how she's changed compared to how Louie has stayed the same since they first met. I think that's, there's a lot of, creative statements uh being made there by ck about relationships and how we change over time to the point where we're just a completely different person or we're exactly the same person but um i don't know it's just still 
it 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 was such i think it's because it was such a dreamlike episode without having sort of the the cinematic flourishes that he's previously tied in with more dreamlike episodes it was a very straightforwardly shot episode for the most part uh, in the past when he's had like when he went to thought about buying the house and he had this very uh expressionistic sort of twirl around the house and all these different flourishes that he's done in the past to help guide you in what is supposed to be dreamlike and what is not we didn't have that to hold on to here and normally i'm all yay that's great it's wonderful i appreciate that but um i think some combination of of that you know experimentation but with a more traditional style kind of hampered my enjoyment of this a bit i could see that and i wouldn't argue against that for anyone i think just because the transition into it was so sharp and seamless that there wasn't really like a visual cue that now we're moving on to something else like this so that might be a problem i did enjoy a lot of these episodes though uh the scenes in these episodes it felt again very episodic the the i called it in my review a barbaric yawp out the window was effective. I mean, and again, that ties in with the dreamlike quality of they don't respond to him doing that. So did he do that? There's a lot of this that I'm not sure if it actually happened. <laughs> and so there's there's that question in there as well. But I do appreciate this continued conversation that we're getting from Louis C.K. about communication and about isolation and about boundaries uh, imagined and real. I do think there's, there's a lot to unpack and appreciate in these two episodes uh how about ellen burston choking on a mento <laughs> the the doctor's response to all of that was perfect he's been really great in the the few scenes that he's been given so another fantastic addition i thought we had um todd's wonderful captivating story that everybody in the bar was listening to really <laughs> attentively hey man he got them to change that sign <laughs> That was see that's the kind of diversion or digression that I'm completely fine with. I went with that very very well, um, very easily. That one I was good with, but it's just the flashback one that I was less accepting of. And again, I'm sure that I'm wrong, and the show and the rest of the critical community who loved it are right. But I just haven't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I need to watch it again or sit with it and see what happens next. Uh, I'm hoping that we get a more centered and grounded Louis by the end of next uh, of this story next week and the start of Pamela. I just I I want Louis to be okay, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm worried about where he's going to be at by uh, the end of this and the start of the Pamela arc, given you know how how their interaction went last week. I'm worried about him. Yeah. I well, I guess one of the other parallels you can draw with the flashback is that this is now like a second time Louis has decided to have sex that probably won't lead down a good path. So um for me, like seeing exactly it's it's not frustrating. It's very good that we can't know what Omnia is saying what Omnia is saying and that that's something that I really want to see communicated in some way. Like we can infer maybe why she is disappointed or whatever those feelings are. It has to do with not wanting to have like been more closely tied to anybody before she leaves or if there's something else going on. So 
Yeah. I I don't imagine the final part of this elevator arc will be particularly happy. Yeah, I I read that as she's as they're done. And uh because because and because they can't communicate. They haven't needed to communicate so far, but in that moment they need to communicate. And she's picked up some English, but he hasn't learned any Hungarian. And if he had even put in some effort towards being able to understand her or caring enough that the thinking that he needs to be able to understand her, that that's important, maybe they, they that conversation would have gone a different way. But he didn't. A lot of this episode and a lot of this arc has been him as a passive figure in his uh, re- relationship, like in, in the deciding to get divorced back flashback we get that as well um we get him being an antagonist but not working help being able to work towards a solution because he's so tied up in his emotions and so unable to get away from that to make active choices to you know i don't know there's there's a lot like you say this could go a number of different ways and it is good that they don't subtitle the hungarian i think that's very important um yeah come on louie she's awesome (laughs) yeah there were great throwaway lines as well, specifically around that, that conversation with his comedian friends, but also just sometimes you're Aids. supposed to be. <laughs> God damn. Yes, that was, that was more funny than it should have been. Oh, especially that we're going to be talking about in the normal heart later in this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's bad. But, uh, <laughs> when he tells Janet, sometimes you're supposed to be sad. Like that, that was, a good point and something that's very true to not just the, the fictional version of Louis C.K. on this show, but what this show does overall, I think. Yeah, and it, it's it's a good point, and I like that they get they let him be right. I'm actually a little frustrated with how consistently the show, and not just the character, but the show, highlights that Louis is to blame for their issues, the strife with Louis and Janet, or these other things that are going, it's like it's all his fault, and that doesn't feel honest at all. Um if it's that's Louis's perception of the situation, I absolutely buy that. But it feels too much third-person omniscient narrator saying that, yeah, it's all Louis's fault. And that is not how 95% of the world's problems happen. So, anyways, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap up this. We're, 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 you, we could unpack this forever, this, this episode. So, let's, let's just, uh, quickly, what wins your week in comedy? Dads. Dads? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm going to give it to Undateable. No, I'm, but we're both giving it to Louie here. And now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre. You are my candy girl And you've got me wanting you Oh, this must have been a huge hit with the nuns in Ukraine. Yes. Super sunshine kids. You are my candy girl And you've got me wanting you You gonna sing the whole way? I just can't believe the love in you. I just can't believe it's you. Oh, honey. Stop, please. Oh, sugar, honey. You are my candy girl. And you've got me wanting you. Oh, my God. Helena, stop. Oh, honey. This week in genre, we're going to preview Crossbones pretty quickly, and then we'll talk a little bit about the supernatural finale, Do You Believe in Miracles, In the Flesh, Orphan Black, To How Nature and Her Wanderings, and Penny Dreadful Resurrection. So first up, I'm going to just preview Crossbones really quickly. This is the new uh, uh, 
Malkovich is Blackbeard show that's going to be airing on NBC starting this week. Uh, I had the option of watching three. I only watched one. There's a few things that are fun about this. I'm a sucker for a pirate show or any, basically any show that has tall ships. I'm a sucker for it. There are a few fun exchanges with John Malkovich as uh, Blackbeard or, or the Commodore as he's called more frequently. And, and then Richard Coyle, who's the lead of the series. It's He plays Tom Lowe, who is a, a an, like an agent of the crown or something it's that's exactly who he's working for is a little sketchy other than he's specifically working for uh the governor of like jamaica or somebody he, he poses as a ship's doctor and uh his his job is to get close to and then kill blackbeard because i mean he's he's blackbeard so uh, so there are a few really fun ratatat exchanges. As anybody who watched Coupling will know that Richard Coyle is a very talented actor. And the few scenes where they do let these guys have the campy, uh, very heightened uh, period kind of dialogue, those are fun. But unfortunately, there's too much around it that really doesn't work for me uh, to for it to really be something I want to spend more time with. Uh, you could do worse. You certainly could do worse, for example, The Night Shift, but it's I, there's a lot of really good TV right now, so either catch up with something you haven't seen yet that's aired this year, or, uh, you know, there's, there's other options out there, and I would say uh, you can probably skip it. But if you're looking for something campy and silly, I mean, it has Julian Sands, so, I mean, if you're looking for campy and silly, there's some there's some fun to be had. It just it doesn't really hit that sweet spot for me where it's it's self aware enough and entertaining enough. Like the the first opening moments, I literally said to myself, "Wait, are they are they serious?" And yes, they yes they were, uh, <laughs> and not in the right kind of way. So it's it's what you think it might be when you hear John Malkovich is doing a Blackbeard show on NBC over the summer. Did you like? The Black Sails pilots or this pilot more? Neither. <laughs> um, the well, action, neither the action in the Black Sails pilot was was much better, but the I appreciate the the campiness or the self awareness of of this one more, but it, it's still not to a level where it feels like it's taking advantage. Like the, the tonal balance isn't quite right for me to fully engage with that element of it. Uh, so I get, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but anyway, so that's, that's crossbones starting this week. Let's move on to the supernatural finale. Do you believe in miracles? I've been watching supernatural, uh, for the past several years. I've seen all of it. You have seen, I believe almost none of it, right? Just maybe, I think it's like five episodes now, including this one. Okay. So what did you think of this finale and were you, were you lost at all? Not having that back, backstory uh the previously on gave me a good idea of what's been happening this season now the previously and... on, i'm going to interrupt you quickly because the previously on in the season finales of supernatural is a is a tradition now they're in their ninth season every year they set it to carry on my wayward son and every year it's awesome and it's so amazing and badass and cool. They didn't do it their first season, but the lyrics for Carry On My Wayward Son are perfect for this show, uh, especially in its earlier seasons. And so that's just a, a very beloved tradition 
by the Supernatural fans, so I figured I would comment on it for you. I was going to ask, actually, because if they do that in every episode, then that's awesome. But uh, if it's just a, a season finale thing, that's still really good, because it did fit. Uh, so it was fun seeing just Dean slash up a lot of people in that montage <laughs> with, with the, the jagger or the knife or whatever. Um, I, I had fun with this. Uh, the actor who plays Metatron is a whole lot of fun. Curtis Armstrong. Yeah, I don't know how big of a role he's had this season or in the entire series, but uh, good cast, and that was, it, it felt like a a strong conclusion with a a relatively cheap but probably effective cliffhanger um, Yeah. for for a genre show like this, I would say. Well, that's the, that's the difference between having this be one of, the, like, the first finale you've watched for Supernatural and the ninth that I've watched for Supernatural, because... Yes, it is promising. It's interesting. It could, you know, except that they've they've done some permutation of this for most of their season finales. Not this specific thing, in case anybody listening hasn't seen it yet. But uh, but yes, I mean, the number of times these characters have died, it's, <laughs> it's actually a recurring gag around season five. It's wonderful. Uh, they've died more than any other character I can think of on television. And uh, and so th they've just gotten to the point in season nine where the angst between the brothers is no longer something that is a legitimate source of storytelling because they've they've experienced that and then worked through it and that hey, we're still brothers so many times that it's just ridiculous for this to still be a source of conflict. And yet they keep going to that same well. It's a significant problem with the show. What I would say is, if you like this, you should go back and watch the show. I mean, and it's, I know because you, you have completionist tendencies, much like I do, that that might be, you know, asking too much because you won't be able to stop when, after season five, which is a really very excellent, uh, what's a, actually, it's, I would say it's a great season finale and would have been an amazing series finale if the show had ended at the end of five seasons like it was originally intended to. Um, so I don't know if you'd be able to stop there, but uh, but it is, I think, if you enjoyed this, you would really like the show, you know, when it was great instead of just entertaining. Uh, I do think it has, a, it has a pretty strong cast and that does really help. The, uh, the right leads in a show like this are very important, as, as you're well aware. And yes, there is... There's good action and, and, you know, I mean, I, I really had problems with Metatron and this. It was just, and in his use, much of the season, they took a joke from earlier in the series with writers and, that was really meaningful and interesting and then just made it too over the top with this character. Uh, they took a potentially interesting Metatron and just made him uh, a cliche as far as I'm concerned. So... I was more negative on this than you are, but I do think that they're, you know, it's not their worst finale. There's some interesting things they could do next year. I just don't trust that they will. How how do they keep going for this long on a network with a genre show like this? Well, they have a really strong fan base and they have creative writers and they you, you just keep churning out scripts and producing <laughs> them. I mean, that's just... Has everything since season five been like kind of crap? There's been ups and downs. Okay. So so the the storyline in season six, it, it basically it's been a lot of some things have worked, some things haven't. Uh, this is actually one of their stronger seasons since season six. Um, but 
you know, and eight and nine have been getting better. Six and seven weren't that great. And uh, really there have been strengths and weaknesses and they, they know that they have good, uh, reliable, dependable actors and likable characters. But like with the stuff that they do here with cast, they, they really need to give cast something different and new to do. And they aren't willing to permanently change the show in order to do it. And um, it's, it's, it can be disappointing. So I would just, yeah. But if you like this, you'll really like the show when it's actually all fi firing on all cylinders. And seasons two through five are good to great television pretty much every week. So season one has to find it. You know, there's a there's a racist ghost monster truck. Uh, <laughs> so perfect. That's I'm gonna go watch that immediately after we finish recording. That's that's about yeah. So if that's your reaction, then you should certainly you should certainly check out Supernatural. Let's move on to In the Flesh. This is episode three of season two. Uh, the title of it being episode three. What did you uh, think of this one? We're halfway through the season now. That I just gotta say that episode title stuff, like with Downton Abbey as well. I find that so grating as somebody who has to do reviews because it's just uncreative and it creates like this detachment from the episode. So like I can't connect with it as well. <laughs> Personal peeves. Um, this I thought was maybe slightly less effective than last week, but. And that mostly has to do with kind of the the main cast, but um, the the story that they introduced with Freddie and his, uh, I guess, ex-wife now, um, Haley, that really worked for me. And if, if they can find a way of, within a very short season, and, and it is an extended season, which is why I think that they thought that they had the chance to do this. And this is actually the first episode that wasn't written by, by Dominic Mitchell, the creator, um, even though, like, Six episodes is still not a lot of time, so the fact that they took the time to expand Rorton in this way and the people within it, I really appreciated that because it was rather a touching story, and it never got to the point where I was worried that Freddy was going to be just so overbearing that he would like become violent, um, and so the fact that it didn't go down that route and that Haley obviously still had feelings for him and that that was complicated up until she realized that she needed to cut off that older version of herself that that worked well yeah there's this was really really heartfelt and uh and this is the kind of story i'm way more interested in a zombie show telling this is the story that you know it's yes we've all seen this kind of story before you know with exes and everything but but it's it has an extra level to it with with the hey you died part of it and it felt very honest I really appreciated that. It's a nice change of pace from the other storylines they have going on. The the continued development of of Kier and where that's going has me a little nervous, just mm -hmm. because it feels very familiar. Um, and I, I I mean, does anybody trust Simon? <laughs> uh, probably not, but for good reasons. So yeah, it's it, but it just seems like a bit, you know. Yeah. He needs to be cackling in a corner somewhere. I don't know. I, I find him kind of endearing. The, the I'm also kind of worried about it as well, but that's mostly because I don't want to see the fallout with Amy. Cause exactly. It's it's kind of seeming like that's going to be annoying. So even less encouraging for me, unfortunately, is what they're doing or what they have started to do with, uh, with Jem and Gary. Because Gary, unlike Maxine... It's just not an interesting antagonist in any way. He's kind of just a dick, so I don't see any like potential 
great storylines to go there. And and it's kind of taking away all the development that Jem had probably in between seasons and kind of at the end of last season. Yeah, there's there, I'm not, I'm not very interested in Gary. I am interested in Jem though, and I think the way she's handling her situation has been appropriately nuanced and it fits with her development over, you know, thus far. The I mean, I just can't help but be kind of skeeved out by seemingly much older dude hitting on the high school student. I know that's my puritanical Midwest American non-European outlook probably, but it still feels kind of shady. Um, so there's that. But uh, outside of that, the rest of what's going on with Maxine, I, I'm, I don't find Maxine as a character interesting, but I do, I am intrigued by this whole finding out who rose first thing that if there actually is more mythology they're building towards with that that could be that could be interesting and promising and i really appreciated what we get with henry and you know one of the characters i'm most interested in at this point is actually i can't remember his name the guy who had the thing with amy philip philip yeah and his role in all of this is that's one of the most interesting for me right now yeah i mean like you said maxine's not the best of characters i think the actress is very good at playing that version of her because i really don't like her um but philip i think is a is a big question mark in a good way so it, it was nice seeing his scenes with amy and keeping her around yeah and again we we're halfway through the season and i i've i've I, for the most part, really enjoyed this season of uh, In the Flesh so far. And they're doing a very good job of expanding to twice as many episodes as they did last season. So that that is definitely a good sign. Uh, let's move on to Orphan Black, to Hound Nature in Her Wanderings. And uh, we had... I mean, I, I needed... I needed the opening of this episode after this week of amazing but traumatizing television. How adorable was the road trip? Good lord. Helena is such a great character. Mm -hmm. I imagine maybe Tatiana Maslany having even more fun with her than she does with Allison or anybody else, because her singing, <laughs> the, whole, the whole tent sequence that's, that uh, many people who watched the, the Miller's pilot would be very proud of. <laughs> the, the continuing saga of Helena makes animal sounds just has me so happy. And she's She's wonderfully fragile in that bar scene. And, and apparently, Patrick J. Adams, who people will know from Suits, who plays Jesse in this episode, I didn't know this. He's a super fan of the show. And that and just kind of went, hey, guys, please put me on your show. And so they, that's why he's on it. So I think that's kind of awesome, too. <laughs> yeah, he worked well. And that was a good move by the Prolethean to, to grab the hat and give it to her. Uh, so, like you said, uh, very fragile, which works for her character right now there are a lot of really good pairings in this for comedic value having art stumble in on, on drunk felix was really good i love how angry felix is too in yeah. that first scene he's justifiably very angry and upset and he doesn't have any way to express it and he can't because I mean, it's not like he can go talk to colin and be like so my sister's a clone and she's got <laughs> me like you know like he doesn't have anyone to talk to and i i that that really got me thinking about Sarah and the way that she's using her, the people that are closest to her, while at the same time, and I talked about this in my review at Sound on Sight, I do think her two defining traits is that she does use people, but she's also incredibly compassionate at the same time. She she is like understanding about Rachel. She's she seems sad 
genuinely upset at what has happened to Rachel. And if, if she had just threatened to basically send my brother to jail for the rest of his life, that would not be happening. Yeah. Um, maybe Sarah's storyline was the one I was least interested in in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aspect of it worked. And you're right that she does have certain compassion. Yet she's somehow the least personable to me as a viewer. And even even Allison, who is very rigid in her interactions with Vic, still felt inviting in some way. Well, do you want to talk about Vic the Dick? <laughs> There's a good return for him. Uh, I'm, I'm less excited about the fact that he's being used because I almost wish that he could just be in recovery and, and be an ally to Allison. But, you know, as long as he's on the screen, I think that that works. Yeah, I did not care for that character last season. I was good with, like, his last appearance, which was a really entertaining way for him to realize he was out of his depth and he should just get the hell out of town. I appreciated that part of it, but I really did not connect with that character in season one, so I was very surprised to have a lot of fun with him here. I applaud the actor, Michael Mando, for for really making this sort of transformation of Vic feel like a, a, a person giving themselves a new life but still feel like still the same guy it does come from a certain core of who Vic was or who he had the potential to be in season one and I mean I'm really hoping that 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 he's able to be an ally like you say for Allison because she's been betrayed by pretty much everybody she's ever known so I don't know if she can take another abandonment or betrayal yeah, I want to ask you, because you, you necessarily have to spend more time thinking about the show than I do. When I was watching Paul's interaction with the Prolethean and him kind of falling around uh, Sarah and Helena, I realized, like, I don't – I'm not interested and don't really care about any of the antagonists in this series. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know if that's a problem or not. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. Fun, it's I fun think. seeing, like, Helena and Sarah interact, and that whole aspect of the show is great, but – the urgency and the characters who we are supposed to not like for reasons of being antagonists, like I don't connect with in any way. Well, and that's a big part of why I'm disappointed that at least right now it seems like they're doubling down on Leaky as like a, a big bad or as the you know the bad guy because he wasn't interesting as a bad guy. He and he only became more interesting this season when he became an ally for Kasima against Rachel. Then all of a sudden he's stuck in the middle. It's more complicated. And I actually, you know, he's just, he's committed to the science more than anything else. And now I understand that character and he is more interesting, but I do not disagree. I think having, I do think there could be interesting things done with the Prolethians, but for the most part that hasn't worked for me. Like I hoped it might. Uh, Paul certainly doesn't, at least they're not trying to make him, nuanced i think that's a much better approach for this character just make a mustache twirly bad guy that's it's way more that's way better than trying to make him this like conflicted angst ridden oh but i love sarah but uh blah 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 afghanistan you know this that's better but no this is a show that has always had a an antagonist problem and it probably doesn't help that rachel is the first clone to feel iffy from in performance and and accent from Maslani, she's gotten better in the the last few appearances of that character, but um, I think that probably is also you know uh, one of the elements this season that has hurt the villains. Making sure I wasn't alone on that. <laughs> oh no, you certainly aren't. Um, 
Yeah, that's their their number one biggest problem. And especially when they've made Helena awesome, but they've made her not a villain anymore. Exactly, yeah. The best villain that they've ever had is now a really fun ally. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with her when she's with the Prolethians. She goes there of her own uh, volition. So maybe she'll team up with them and then it'll be more interesting again. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a concern. It's their number one concern right now. I want my boyfriend. <laughs> so great. I love the, the lineup of the drinks. Yeah. It's delightful. Very nice. Well, if you want more Orphan Black Talk, you can go to Sound on Sight and read my review. And more in the Flesh Talk, Sean, you have your review up at Sound on Sight as well. Let's move on to Penny Dreadful. The They had their third episode, Resurrection. And this, much like several of the Game of Thrones episodes this season, it's about a 50-50 split with half of the episodes spent in flashback or centered around uh, Caliban, I guess we're calling him, Frankenstein's first monster. Uh, and then the other half spent with our regular protagonists. Uh, how did that structure work for you? And did one was one half more successful than another? It almost felt like the the Frankenstein Caliban story was longer than fifty percent, and that one absolutely worked more for me. I wish that rather than this being an eight episode first season, it might have been ten or thirteen, just so that. That could have been the entire episode because it was such a beautiful, beautiful homage to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in almost every conceivable way, beginning with like the structure of the frame narrative, which did the surprisingly difficult job of turning a character who we're, we are introduced to as he kills somebody who we really like and then attempting to make him sympathetic. And I would say in many ways succeeding in that way for the same reasons that uh, anybody who's read Shelley's novel can sympathize with that creation as well. So that was rather effective. And more than on any of the source material that they've drawn on so far, this to me stood out as the best. That was by far the weakest thing the show has done. So we disagree. <laughs> That's fun. No, I, I thought I was completely bored. Uh, okay. And I I think the actor was doing a good job, but it was just so heavy-handed. And, and the number of scenes where he's telling Frankenstein something that he was there to see. It's like, you're, you're telling me something I witnessed and experienced with you. Why are you telling me this? It just it's felt, it's like, okay, if you're going to have him narrate directly to the audience, do that. If you're trying to justify it as part of this ornate conversation or, or really monologue that Caliban is giving, then, I mean, it needs to, it just was so, it was so familiar. And yes, a loving tribute to Mary Shelley or a tired retread. Of Mary Shelley. So uh, that was the problem I, I was having with and it just I would like you said maybe if they had more time I would have connected with that part of the episode much better if we had gotten to actually see him in his uh, his milieu at the theater in you know working behind the the stage. I really appreciated that sort of homage where yes he's Frankenstein's monster but he's also apparently the Phantom of the Opera. That's interesting. That's fun. But when we, we just have a line from him about, well, of course, everybody still hated me because I look hideous. I'm like, you don't look that hideous. You have yellow eyes. That's weird. And he got some scars, but you don't look that hideous. So this doesn't work. And just one thrown away line of dialogue about this and then a random dude in a top hat scowls. I mean, that's not enough for me <laughs> to buy in. Uh, so so I, I just that 
So I'm glad it worked for you, but it really didn't for me. Everything else did, though. I was way more interested in the stuff at the zoo. I thought the imagery of Feral Kid at the very end was, for me, it was very reminiscent of uh, the end of Sweeney Todd, the, the Sondheim opera, and um, not the film, the, the opera. Uh, anyways, uh, and then even just the... Um, the, the recurring uh, sort of visions and this notion of increased threat towards uh, Vanessa and, and the, the rest of their, their crew. I thought that was more interesting. But I, I mean, again, I'm just way more invested in Eva Green and Timothy Dalton than I am with most of the other people. I'm invested in Victor Frankenstein as well. And, uh, you know, I, again, I, I like that actor playing Caliban, but just not nearly enough to make up for what felt like very ham-fisted storytelling defend and, defend your <laughs> your appreciation and i would say that the other stuff maybe dragged down the episode for me a little bit um the the couple parts that did work well one of them was related to frankenstein so having had this experience with caliban and then telling timothy dalton's character uh, sir malcolm like you will have to take responsibility for the changes that you elicit. Um, that that was a very good, I guess, episode echo of what's been going on before that, and also that that Ethan Chandler is kind of on board just so he can get the money to help pay for Brona's uh, medical expenses. That I don't know if that was like the best way to get him back, but at least they're giving him something semi interesting. Yeah, it's not just I want to have fun killing monsters. That's it's it's that is a reason and it's a real one. And yeah, you know, that absolutely worked for me. As did that conversation between uh, Frankenstein and I don't remember Timothy Dalton's character's name. Let's call him James Bond because why not? Sir James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> Explorer. <laughs> I'm very excited to see Dracula if and when we see him. Yeah, I think that, and I like that they directly connect. Because, of course, you say Mina. We all make that association. So I like that they did specifically tie in Jonathan Harker and, and all of that as well. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to, to what's coming next. I'm glad we didn't get – we had a week off from uh, Dorian Gray, for example, and less time with uh, the still very noticeable uh, Irish accent from Billy Piper but, uh, but yeah, I still liked it. Just I liked the other two better, I guess. And so this one was your favorite so far? Uh, probably not my favorite episode. I think last week still was. But uh, Frankenstein's probably my favorite character on the show right now, which is probably why I, I warmed to it more than you did. Fair enough. So what wins your week in uh, genre then? I mean, obviously the answer is Hannibal, but there's a whole two and a half hour <laughs> podcast about that on our feed already. Hannibal wins uh, one through ten. Um, probably Penny Dreadful. I'll for the first win so far. Okay, and I'm going to give it to Orphan Black for Sugar Sugar. Because <laughs> it's enough. wonderful. It's wonderful. We'll yeah. take a break now and come back with our week in drama. Charleston, il papà, 
This week in drama, we're going to preview Halt and Catch Fire, which is starting next week on AMC. And then we'll talk a little bit about The Normal Heart on HBO before diving in with Fargo, Bird on Ass, and the Americans finale, Echo. First, uh, let's talk a little bit about Halt and Catch Fire and this pilot leaked out there. Uh, so theoretically, several of our listeners may have already seen it, but we're still going to keep this spoiler free for those who haven't. What were your expectations going into this? What did you know about it? And then how did the finished product live up to or exceed or not live up to those expectations? Uh, I hadn't read anything about it. I'd only seen the trailer. And let's see. My expectations were basically lowered exponentially by the fact that the last two AMC shows, Turn and Low Winter Sun, have not been great. So <laughs> We're Turn and Low Winter Sun, basically. Yes. So that's, that actually works in Halton Cashfire's favor. And of those three, I think that this is the most successful pilot. It's hard to have a, a comparison point, I guess. Tonally, it would probably be most similar to how Breaking Bad did a mixture of its comedy and drama, but this obviously isn't anything like Breaking Bad as a show, so I, I, won't, I wouldn't even know how to recommend this to viewers based on what they've seen so far from other shows. Yeah, this is a big question mark still for me. I was more optimistic than it sounds like you were going into it, if only because I'm a big fan of Lee Pace from both Wonderfalls and Pushing Daisies, and so I was excited to see him get another starring vehicle. I think the 80s is an interesting setting, and I think the the you know the development of personal computing and stuff is an interesting and uh, a, a setting that is full of possibilities, I guess. And but this this pilot does not live up to the possibilities that I think the story has. The other thing to keep in mind though is that most pilots don't. Pilots are hard. Uh, that is, goes without saying. What I was disappointed with about this pilot, though, was that it felt like it was trying very much to be Mad Men or to be some of these other prestige anti-hero shows. It's another anti-hero. We have a mysterious stranger uh, who who is brilliant and has has is forward-looking, but he has terrible interpersonal relationships and he has a deep dark secret. We don't know where he's been. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, he, he's got an air of mystery around him, but he's uber confident and cocky and probably a little wounded guys, probably a little wounded. <laughs> he hits baseballs in his apartment. He breaks windows. Yeah. Cause he's got, he's got rage issues. <laughs> he's, he's deep and he's broken and I'll, I could probably fix him. I mean, that, it feels like that's what we're supposed to be thinking. I was disappointed that I really did not appreciate the way they set up. Uh, him and the female lead or the female side of that trio it just felt very tired and uninteresting and i mean i i, I like that character for the most part her the female character whose name uh, the actress name escapes me at the moment but uh, uh, uh mackenzie something mackenzie davis maybe mackenzie davis uh but and i think there's potential especially I, i'm more interested in that character than i am the you know, the lee pace character just because i feel like i've seen his character way too many times but I don't know. It just, it's still, it doesn't, I, I don't feel like there's new enough character beats here for me to really engage. That being said, pilots are hard and it's still, it feels like it's still very much finding its feet. Yes. And I mean, would you agree that if AMC had released three shows at the same time, Low Winter Sun, Turn, and this, 
Oh yeah, this is definitely the best of those. You'd be more keen to kind of, you'd have more curiosity about where this would go. You'd feel a little bit more confident about it, I would imagine. Um, and, I, I mean, definitely the low winter sun. I still think there's way more potential in turn. I, I don't know. I haven't kept up with that one, so I don't know if it's lived up to that potential. There's so much potential in that storyline uh, that that I would probably actually be more interested in checking with turn than this one, just because I'm so tired of antiheroes. And at least mm -hmm. Turn has a hero instead of an anti-hero. But um, I don't know. It's just I would have liked to have been able to see more episodes to get a sense of where they were going and just how how original or how middle of the road they're going to take this, this story. Because it could go either way. Yeah, I'm on board with what you've just said, not with the show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, this Sunday's HBO TV movie, uh, The Normal Heart. And I talked about it last week a little bit. This was a very emotional movie for me. What did uh, what, what did you think of it? How did it how did it work for you? I thought it was good, not great. I I'm a big fan of Mark Ruffalo. I thought the acting in this was very solid. It it just took a long time into the, I guess it's about two hours, 15 minutes-ish, uh, for me to like really start to connect with any of the main characters. And once I finally did, it was kind of at the point where the, the situations that they were in kind of necessitated it. So rather than it being them on their own, it was kind of the, the perils that they're in that I would assume most people would feel sympathy towards. So I'm not so sure that the characters work for me as much as the performers did a decent job of bringing that out. Okay, fair enough. It felt really, like, shouty, I should say. Yeah, well, I, that, I think that's fair, and that, that goes to the main character being a shouty character and it being very much in his voice and uh, his, his perspective. So I think that's definitely very fair. I connected with the characters almost immediately, but I did, there's a lot here I didn't know about the early days of the AIDS crisis. And uh, and I appreciated the, the way it was handled. I was interested in that. I do agree, though, that it probably could have been done better, that part of the storytelling. Yeah, I also didn't really know much at all about this period of the history. And on that level, it was great, because they obviously get at a lot of the details. And uh, probably of the characters... Other than Mark Ruffalo's Felix, his his love interest was really well developed, I thought, by the end of it. And uh, the physical changes that that actor had to undergo, was, those were impressive. Yeah, that's Matt Bomer. He, he gives a really staggering performance here. Uh, as does, I mean, I think this entire cast, get, they are given meaty material. And when they have their scene, they knock it out of the parks. I, and it's such an easy thing to fall back on. It's an important story that somehow makes the movie better. Yeah, and, and so I think it could have easily been a very manipulative and a very, um, a, a very soapboxy film. And for me, it wasn't that. So I, I would applaud it for that. And also, just you know, it, it's it's material that should be watched. I guess. Sure. Certainly, and that's probably the biggest success of it is that it managed to tell manages to tell this kind of story uh, without being manipulative, which is really easy in this kind of thing. So, um, having to work around that was a fantastic job on the writer's part, who was also the writer of the original play. Correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
And it's a story of basically Ned Weiss's him. But again, it just sounds like I connected with the characters and, and you didn't. And so, I mean, that, that, so how frequently does it come down to that, right? All the time, yeah. Characters and or story, uh, and that makes or breaks it usually. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our next drama because we got we got to dive deep with both of these next two shows, and that's uh, Buridan's Ass from Fargo. This was that episode that I was telling you about last week. Did I overhype it for you? Nothing happened in this episode. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Just, you know, another straightforward Fargo. Yeah, my friend who uh, was complaining to me about how nothing happens in Fargo, I saw him a couple days ago, and he was like, yeah, I really like that episode of Fargo. <laughs> um, those, the, the two central action set pieces were just fantastic, and especially the, the gunfight in the snowstorm with uh, Mr. Wrench and what's the other character's name? Uh, Lauren Malvo. Uh, with him, the and are they brothers? Oh yes, yes. I don't remember the other guy's name. They're, they're yeah. the the partners. That was that was just beautiful and exactly what I want to see on my television when it comes time to an action set piece. So that was both executed well in terms of tension and and utilizing that and managing that, but also just aesthetically, really really impressive. The cinematography is gorgeous. And uh, tying in with that whiteout, I mean, it's just, it's spooky. You know, if you're imagining being in that situation and uh, it's set in the middle of the day and, you know, it, it just because the sun's shining doesn't mean that you're going to see what's coming. And the, the way it was handled was very, very effective. And obviously, Malfo leaving Glenn Howerton's character where he's at was... Ooh, that was dark. Yeah, very Coen Brothers kind of dark, so that, that worked out incredibly well and rather unfortunate for him. Uh, him as, soon, as soon as he gets the tape off of his mouth just a little bit to to, sell, to yell out, wait, you know, yeah, it's far too late. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's And because that's one of those situations where you're watching and going, what would you do? Mm-hmm. If, if, if that was you, what would you – the only thing you could try to do would be that. But, I mean, there's a blizzard – I mean, and the, that's the other thing. That scene, that is not what would happen. They would not just fire into the house because there could be hostages. You have no idea what's going on. They wouldn't just do that. But I was willing to give it to them because it was so suspenseful and because it was so well handled. Uh, and that's a good that's a good sign as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I think that uh, Glenn Howerton has done a really good job this season. It's been nice to see him branch out. There's there's elements of his Always Sunny character in this performance, but I appreciate seeing him get to stretch a few different muscles. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Were you able to buy into how Lester escapes and gets back in time to frame his brother without anybody noticing? Again, I was willing to give it to him. Yeah, I, I that was fine for me because it's a hospital, there's a lot going on, and uh, and neither one of those patients seemed like they needed constant check-ins or care. So, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give that one to them. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a very messed up and dark thing he does. Again, I keep saying dark, but having, um, you know, he puts a gun in that kid's bag. It's, it's messed up and it's hard to know exactly what he's hoping for or how he thinks this will exonerate him. Cause there's just, it just doesn't make sense. There's too much, 
evidence of course we're third person like we are, we have the third person omniscient perspective so it's easy for us to say that what do you think he thinks he'll get out of this i don't know the when his brother came in to speak to him before he got it right on when he was talking about lester being somebody who doesn't really have a place in this world he's not right for it and there's just something missing and i wonder what, if anything, other than self-preservation, is really going through his mind right now? Like, does he have other motivations? It feels like a, a Walter White Heisenberg thing, especially mm -hmm. that grin he gives at the end of, like, you right. you guys didn't appreciate me, you didn't, you know, see my value, but really I'm this brilliant, underappreciated, you know, kind of thing. That, that, that's what I was getting from it, as well as he's just acting out against his brother who is he's jealous of and has been for a long time yeah i mean I, I could see that i don't know how much more he can accomplish and i'm not sure that he knows that either but i, I guess to give him some sense of pride having been able to do this relatively error-free uh, there's only what four episodes left in the entire series yep in the, so. yes so I'm looking forward to whatever happens with him. I mean, we've gotten plenty of action and, and shootings and deaths and near deaths, and I don't even know what's up with Salverson. Um, so his is the arc that I'm most interested to see conclude, I guess, or to develop in the next couple episodes. Any predictions on Molly? I can't imagine her being dead. Mm hmm Because those two characters... Gus and Molly have been so integral to the the natural balance of order in this series that I don't know if they would offer this early, and I wouldn't want to see her go because she's been fantastic, and yet I guess I probably wouldn't be surprised. Fargo hasn't really like shown me what kind of series it is completely just yet. In the same way, like... We know what Game of Thrones does with its characters. We kind of have a sense of how Hannibal handles these situations. There hasn't been enough time in Fargo for me to get an understanding of that, so I, I really don't know. Yeah. I would be surprised if she's dead, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's sidelined then uh, for at least oh, an episode or two. Um, you know, she she got shot, so it, it's in a very effective cliffhanger. Man, those FX people... Okay. You watched this, you know, this past week. I watched this two to three weeks ago and then went, ah, I need the next one. And I can't <laughs> talk about it. There's a reason so many of us with screeners were talking about it on Twitter because it's supremely effective suspense. And uh, I very much look forward to finding out what comes next. Shall we move on to the Americans? Let's do it. We had our, our season finale for the Americans, uh, Echo. And yeah, that's that's one way to do a finale, man. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to play point-counterpoint on this, and I'll preface it by saying that I still think The Americans is a very fine series, but I, I will now reveal myself as a, a secret undercover American skeptic. And, okay, I don't even know where to begin here. Um, Nina's storyline. I will begin the discussion by saying that I didn't like that given the character that we were introduced to last season and how strong she's been, and how capable of getting out of the corners that she's been back to. I didn't like that her agency was removed and her fate was ultimately decided by people not herself. And obviously that has to do with getting Stan to that point where he decides one thing or another, 
but because I don't think I really bought into either of her potential romantic relationships in this season, I more just cared about those three characters individually, that I would have preferred that had not been the end point. Okay, so you didn't want her to get stuck. I I wish that the decision of her character's fate had not been left in the hands of Stan. Okay, but, I mean, did you have trouble believing that it would be? Because I didn't have any trouble believing that. No, I had trouble buying into that Stan would consider turning on his country for one. But also that I don't... I don't sense much love between either Nina and Oleg or Nina and Stan. Maybe the the most that I sense is Stan's love for Nina, but even that seems not that much, mm-hmm. just based on what we've seen this season. Last season, I would have said something different, um, but this season, I guess, I don't. This has to do with an overall. It's not an issue that I have with the Americans. It's just a characteristic, I think, where. More so in this series than in other prestige dramas or whatever you want to call them, um, this feels like it's shot from a third-person perspective. And in other series like Hannibal, maybe I I feel and experience things through the eyes of specific characters. And this one seems much more like a genre show, like the thriller novel that tells a third-person story. And I watch the story unfold from a distance perspective, if that makes sense. And that might be why. I had a hard time buying into those relationships. Okay, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I don't think Nina and Oleg are in love. I think they're having fun and they're friends and they they're you know they're having some fun. But I mean, I don't think we're supposed to think that they're in love. I think they're just fond of each other because obviously Oleg is trying to tell her she should run, but he doesn't do anything to to help her specifically. He he doesn't stretch his neck out that far. Uh, to help her so I don't think we're supposed to think this is some forever couple Um, and as for Stan and Nina that one's harder to read because I agree that there was a stronger sense of their connection last season than this season however I never for a second thought he was going to turn on his country and so for me watching this his progression in this episode was was not oh what's he going to do but it was watching him come to the realization that I knew he had to make. And so that's, that was interesting to me, but I don't know whether the show was going for that or not, whether the show wanted you to not be certain of what Stan would do or whether the show was having fun with that dramatic irony of watching the inevitable conclusion come. I don't know either. I would want to say initially that it wanted us to believe there was a split decision there and that it could have gone a different way just based on the the way that him leaving the paper was shot but it could very well be dramatic irony i mean fields and weisberg are obviously very intelligent writers and so i wouldn't put that past them but uh i guess the fact that we don't know for sure might be somewhat of an issue yeah that that could be as for nina's fate being out of her hands i i mean I agree. I would like all of my my interesting, nuanced female heroines to be able to control their fate all the time, but that's not how this world works. They don't get to. And so I didn't have that problem uh, with, with this episode. Um, next point? Okay. Uh, next point. This is one that several people have said, and it's actually not a big one for me. It was just kind of 
somewhat funny and annoying. Uh, Jared's deathbed confession was amazing. <laughs> what is everybody talking about? Come on, that was so powerful. I I'm oh no not... no no yeah the <laughs> the performance was beautiful and he, he he kicked ass in that scene without a doubt. Um, it might just be like minor believability issues and the fact that it's a huge exposition dump. If more of it had been focused on I guess he just didn't need to tell as much of that information as he did. So if he had just kind of gone on and on about his relationship with Kate and wanting them to let her know, maybe the show would have felt confidence in us enough to infer some of that information, and then Claudia could have filled in the blanks afterwards. Um, but just how long and dense that speech was was a slight issue. But again, not not a huge one, I thought. Well, it's one of the most consistent complaints I've heard of this uh, finale, and uh, it's one I that that one I don't see at all because the 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 horror of it, especially to our two leads, I think is so significant. I think you needed to not just get like the oh what happened? Did he accident? Did the the sister die accidentally? No, he killed her. He assassinated her very coldly, very clearly because of the manipulations of, of Kate and what had been basically done to his brain by their team and the, in, in conjunction with this conflict from his parents. I think we needed that definitive answer and not just supposition. And so I was completely fine with it. Uh, I thought the performances from all involved, like you said, were, were very strong, but also the, especially uh, the, the reaction of, of Carrie Russell, you know, this, maybe they needed to use less blood or something <laughs> because maybe that's what people were having the trouble with. But I mean, I, I just bought into the emotion of it so fully that I wasn't caring about the, the realism of if he would have the, the wherewithal to, to say all of this or to respond to their questions, you know? So maybe that's, but I mean, again, for me, because the emotion of it worked so completely, uh, I didn't have any any problems, though I acknowledge others. Clearly, you're that is probably the number one consistent complaint I've heard. Yeah, and and again, it's it's not the biggest one. Um, those were like my main. I don't want to. I don't even want to use the, the term issues because I don't want to make it sound like I really disliked this episode or this season because this is still one of the better dramas on television. I just don't think I'm ready to call it like you know, top five or top 10 material. And then that's obviously like arbitrary numberization, but it's not in the upper echelon for me yet. And I still feel like with other shows that had that potential, they no longer do. This one still does for me. It's just not gotten there. And I don't really know what I want for it to get there. I guess going back to that comment about feeling like I'm watching it from a distance it just seems like most viewers are more invested in these characters and have more personal stakes when it comes to Philip and Elizabeth. And there's been a couple of times this season where I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, the, the episode that featured their really horrible sex scene was deeply affecting. And then one of the episodes that followed that when the one that ended with Philip going to uh, the pastor and everything that he has he was going through in that episode. I was very invested in that, but those to me are exceptions to the rule. Okay. Yeah. For me, this is absolutely a top 10 
uh, certainly so far, but I, I would be very surprised if this isn't in my top 10 at the end of the year. I think the whole season has been ve- like the, the worst episode has been very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I thought this finale was fantastic and consistent throughout and set up a wonderful and complex problem for next season and one that i absolutely bought into with Paige. and may i add that pastor is Paige's kate they've already <laughs> started i'm yeah. calling it now mm. i i couldn't agree more with everything that you just said in terms of going forward i couldn't be more excited about season three of the americans because that setup the only thing i'm reluctant about is that they've spent this entire season doing a fantastic job not going back to marital struggles with Philip and Elizabeth, and I'm worried that they might rely on that a little bit more since they seem to have somewhat difference, a, a somewhat of a difference of opinions in terms of how to integrate Paige. Um, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that because just that potential is really, really exciting. Also, you mentioned her already, but how great was it to get Margot Martindale back when they rounded that corner? I was like, oh, I didn't think they'd get her again. <laughs> I was super excited. The Americans is one of the shows that I pay attention to most during the credits, and I'm always hoping, Margo Martindale, Margo Martindale, let me see your name. And, and I got it, and that, that pulled me through a lot of it. So with Martha, we did get that dream for, from Stan where Martha's putting files away. Does, does, Stan, does Stan subconscious know? I, I'm really resistant to that idea. Okay. Because I don't know if we've been given anything else on screen that would indicate that. I like that image mm-hmm. a whole lot more so as foreshadowing rather than his subconscious at work. And okay. so I was really happy to see it, and I thought, oh, that's really fun. But when people started coming up with that discussion of it being, oh, Stan actually kind of knows what's going on. He just hasn't come to that consciously. I don't know if I am on board with that. And then the only other uh, thing, I guess, is because it was this episode, right, where we had the the a- asset do- bleeding out in the phone booth. I thought that was incredibly powerful and uh, a-, a nice tie in with the- what the rest of the of the season has been with with that arc. I thought it was played out very well, and of course, just another opportunity to praise Larrick, who's been such a wonderful antagonist all season long on this show. No doubt, ditto. Like he, he's been a huge MVP now that Margot Martindale has been sidelined a little bit. Um, yeah, his presence was fantastic. I've I've read a couple people talk about him maybe becoming somewhat sympathetic in those final moments. I don't know if the show was like going for that, and I don't even know if I really care. I really liked him as the the antagonist boogeyman, and in this episode, he was probably as frightening as he's ever been. So that that was a huge plus for this season overall. Yeah, definitely. Well, then what wins your weekend drama? That's a tough call between Fargo and the Americans. And I know I've said a couple negative things about the Americans, but that's just because I want to challenge it a little bit. Um, I'll give it to Fargo for that snowstorm sequence. And I'll give it to the Americans for crushing my heart. <laughs> <laughs> The Fargo, like you said, they both were. It's, can just just briefly. So Sunday, right? We had the Good Wife finale. We had Mad Men, uh, My Way. We had uh, there was another one that's. Oh, we had we had a really very good Game of Thrones. Then Monday we had uh, Louis, 
which was very good. Then Tuesday, uh, we had Fargo. Then Wednesday, we had The Americans. Then Friday, we had Hannibal. Then Saturday, we had very good, but not great, episodes of Orphan Black and In the Flesh. And then on Sunday, we had an amazing Mad Men again. <laughs> this has got to be the best. Like, is there some show I'm forgetting for Thursday to make this just like a full-on every single day week of amazing? I don't think so. I have to look at my notes, but no, there's most of the Thursday shows that I was watching are now done. But even so, the week is ridiculous. Ridiculous, and it's got to come to an end just because there's so many finales in there that, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to recover a little bit. I think. But, <laughs> anyways, a few show notes here before we go to our uh, season spotlight on Mad Men with Libby Hill. You can find a post up for this at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of the week's television. You can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on Sight TV. You can send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. And we do have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed up in iTunes. We would greatly appreciate your feedback there. And then, of course, we're both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are? At Sean Coletti. And, Sean, what is our question of the week? Uh, I'm going to throw two out there, one TV-related and one not. Uh, we just, we're just going to be talking about Mad Men in just a, a moment, and uh, we talked a little bit about it in terms of best episodes. And This is a show that I'm always at a loss to kind of pick individual episodes because they all flow rather well for me. So I'm always curious to find out what are some of people's favorite Mad Men episodes individually. And just as a general thing, coming up on summer, what are some people's summer activities that they have planned Going outside? What? <laughs> no. You have to watch TV. <laughs> you can't go outside. That sounds about right. Well, uh, we'll take a break now and come back with our season spotlight on Mad Men Season 7.0 with Libby Hill from TV on the Internet. Don, my boy. Bird? The stars in the sky, the moon on high, they're great for you and me. Because they're free. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. The stars belong to everyone. They gleam, they're for you and me. The flowers in spring. The robins that sing, the sunbeams that shine, they're yours, they're mine, and love can come to everyone. The best things in life are free. Back with the Televerse, this is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Sean Coletti, and this week we are doing another season spotlight. Uh, after that episode, we pretty much had to. Uh, here to help us talk about Mad Men Season 7.0 or 1 or whatever you want to call it is Libby Hill from 
NPR and uh, RogerEbert.com and the AV Club, as well as, of course, TV on the Internet. Libby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm very excited. It's been a very eventful season of Mad Men. You had a piece that went up uh, today at, as we're recording at Roger Ebert talking about this half season. Um, and it's, it's been a crazy good week of, of TV this past week. And it was capped in this wonderful way by this episode. Uh, Libby, what did you think of, of this episode, this uh, finale, mid-season finale, as it were, and, and how it sort of fits into the, the, the shape of this half season of Mad Men? I thought it was amazing. Like, it's really hard for me to talk about Mad Men objectively because every time I watch an episode, I realize, oh, yeah, this is definitely like one of my top three shows of all time. And so I I kind of lose that objectivity somewhere. But it it was just um, it was a beautiful way to bring things back to a level. It's really weird to look back six episodes and see how much turmoil there was and to have gotten to this place organically where it feels like we are kind of back to the to what we are comfortable with thinking of Mad Men of. And they got to it so quickly and so efficiently. And and um, it makes me really nervous for the backup, <laughs> to be honest, because I don't trust that um, that calm. I, I feel like the bottom will drop out under us and maybe not. I'm hoping not. But um, I thought it was just a beautiful episode, a little weird um, very inspiring and just like all of the best Mad Men episodes. And you're right. This was such a week of TV. Like I could not be happier to be living in this time with this TV. The two of you are, are the bigger Mad Men aficionados. And I mean, I love this episode and I'm not even that, you know, that in love with the show in general. So Sean, am I correct in assuming that you loved, loved, loved this finale? Uh, like Libby, it's objectivity is, utterly impossible with Mad Men for me, I think. But yeah, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the the half season as a whole. And and maybe if we want to look at individual episodes, this might not have been my number one, but there were so many great Mad Men moments in it. And the the weird part that Libby's mentioned that we'll talk about at the end of the episode was (laughs) at, at the very least thoroughly entertaining and also surprisingly touching. But things like Julio and Peggy and... Don and Megan's conversation, there was just a lot of like heavy hitting moments for me. And, and this was a really emotional 45, 47 minutes. Let's just dive in with that. That is probably my favorite, one of my favorite Mad Men moments of all time. And what, what we're referencing is th- this episode of Waterloo ends with a musical number from Beyond the Grave that is poignant and and simple and heartfelt and absolutely moving while being utterly charming at the same time. Did, did you guys, I mean, I watched it like five times in a row right when it finished. Uh, I, was it as effective for you guys as it was for me? I'm not great at weird. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just be honest. But it, it worked for me because Mad Men always finds a way to um, make it weird, really weird. And then, but then also react to it appropriately. I think that Don's reaction to whatever it was he was seeing was so of a piece with like who he is and like how he processes emotion and loss. And um, I thought it was such, it was just such a beautiful representation of that character's life. And, and I mean, that actor's life and history and, and, um, it worked for me, and I love that a show going into its end game can kind of just 
be fucking weird <laughs> like, and not give any craps about like how that might be perceived. Yeah, falling off of the, the crash from last season, this is another, I think, moment that people will have some issues with, and understandably, but it, it really is a very nice homage to Burke Cooper and the, just the detail of him being in socks, uh, how it thematically tied into the episode, the, the last lines that he quotes about the moon belonging to everyone, and obviously that plays into the moon landing that we see in this episode. I thought it was fantastic, and specifically because Weiner lingers on Dawn shortly after, at least for about 10 seconds, where he just has to kind of sit down and take that in. So that, that was perfectly executed as far as I'm concerned. I was so excited to wear my colorful socks today in tribute, and then it was way too hot, so I couldn't do it. But, I mean, I just, I love musicals to start out with, which will surprise no one uh, who listens to our Hannibal podcast. Uh, and, and and so there's that element of it. I enjoy Robert Morse, the actor who plays Burt Cooper, his performance in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, where he plays an ad exec uh, trying to climb the, the ladder, you know, that in a, in a famous musical from the 60s also was adapted into a film that he's in as well so people who aren't aware there is a whole other history with this actor in musicals but aside from that this is it ties in with themes of the episode this is a a bittersweet moment because we've now seen three and almost four people die in this office or on this job mrs blankenship and lane and now bert I mean, maybe he was at home. I don't. I couldn't quite tell. I mean, I guess it would make more sense for him to be at home, but he basically lived in that office, and so it feels like he died there. And certainly, the way that he goes away, he walks off not into the sunset, but into into an office. And then we, in the beginning of this episode, we have a very suicidal-sounding uh, Ted. So this warning of yes everything seems like it's great you're going to get a bit more money you've just signed up for five more years theoretically assuming everything goes through but don't let this place kill you i loved that it's very interesting but at the same time like it's it's so madman in the sense that it's like yes don't let this place kill you don't let this place consume you while also recognizing that for these people this place is the only thing keeping them alive like Don's pitch to Ted was like, Ted, don't let this kill you. But also if you lose this, that's true death. Like it wants to have it both ways. And I think that's really fascinating because it understands that this office, this business, this life that they're living, um, it'll kill you if it, if you let it, but they don't know that being without it will be any different. I think that's been the success of this half season is that, we buy into that and what Don is selling to, to, to Ted in that moment because a lot of the criticism going into to Mad Men in these later seasons, of course, has to do with repetition, uh, reusing certain storylines or plot points. And th- this was very much a Don Draper in a completely different context. And all of the, the love stuff, the threesome, he was so just disconnected from all of that. And the emotional thrust had to do with getting back into the job he was good at and so that that's why i think this focus is so heavily on the importance of the office because for some of these people it's it's integral it's part of their composition and then i think that that is a huge highlight well what were the other highlights in this episode and in the season for you guys 
one of my favorite just moments scenes um in the whole run of the show was just watching Don and Peggy, not even in the pitch, but watching the moon landing, sitting on that bed together, him opening the beer for her after she's gone and got beers just for them. Um, it is what I have waited <laughs> the entire series to see that that just friendship and that just re- positive regard out in the open, like that they both recognize that they really care and respect each other and and it was there was just something about seeing them sit together that just moved me in such a profound way and also kelly martin was in the finale and i just have a lot of childhood feelings about kelly martin (laughs) and it's not even just that they're sitting together watching the moon landing it's the physical closeness they they're like touching shoulders and arms. They are so close to each other, and they are so comfortable with each other. I mean, when's the last time you sat that close to a coworker that was just a coworker? Well, yeah, it, absolutely. It, it's very um, and it's not. It's never anything sexual. It's a very like just a comfortable, companionable. Like mm-hmm. I have known you my entire life. Like like they are the definite like soul friends like i understand you i get you and we don't have to talk about how i get you because that's super lame but like this is just an ease that i don't have with everyone in my life that i have with you and it means so much to me not that i'm projecting at all into <laughs> what that relationship means to me but you know john um for me highlights at least in this episode it's probably the the official dissolution of the marriage between Don and Megan, the you know him saying whatever you want, I owe you that, and her saying you don't owe me anything. That that hit very hard, and that's the logical and unfortunate conclusion to that story. Uh, if we're looking at the half season as a whole, obviously last week with Don and Peggy, but um, I, I probably point more so for me to the second episode of the season, a day's work, and all of the the Don Sally stuff, and of course the the final sequence of that where she says I love you so that that was one of the best Mad Men moments of all time for me absolutely beautiful and can we just talk a moment about the uh her her Betty pose with that cigarette it was spooky it really was was terrifying like (laughs) holy crap that was like full-on channeling and it made me very uncomfortable (laughs) what was the the motivation for kissing Neil in that because I it's impossible to read for me she she thinks he's cute and smart I mean, and nice. Yeah. <laughs> she thinks he's not her dad. Yeah. Because if she was going after her dad, as we get we get uh, pointed out for us by by Cutler, Jim this Cutler, week. yeah, yeah, he's he's the football player. He's the the stereotypical all American, you know, ideal, and that would be you know shirtless McGee who we meet. I don't remember the character's name. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but is, it, is that that one? My is that Sean? That's Sean, yeah. That's Sean? That's Sean. Okay. Yes, it's, and that would be Sean. And at first, that's what it appears that we're going for, but as somebody, I read so many reviews last night, I don't remember who was talking about this. Um, as one of the reviews that I was reading mentions, not only does she not go for Sean, but goes for Neil, who you wouldn't expect. The When we get Peggy with her hot handyman, that doesn't matter what matters is her conversation with julio and that's a relationship that's so much more significant and i I really appreciated how this episode subverted our expectations with both of those interactions absolutely i think you're i think you're i think you're totally right with that i just really like the actor who plays julio and it's he's at once 
very funny in his delivery, but also, like we've said, incredibly poignant in how he says that, you know, his mother doesn't care about him. And it's, we rarely get, I think, or at least it's not in, in the foreground. I don't think that um, mentioning of Peggy's earlier pregnancy and, and that she has a kid out there, um, that's never something that's on the conscious level for Mad Men, or if it is, it's only occasionally. And so to, to see that brought up is just great series memory, which isn't really unusual. I think maybe more than any showrunner that I can think of, Matt Weiner has incredible series memory with all the callbacks that he uses. Um, but that was especially emotional at this point, I think. Let's talk a little bit more about, about Cutler and also maybe about Joan, both this episode and this season. Were you guys surprised by the level of animosity that we got from both of those characters towards towards Don? Because it didn't feel just like frustration or anger. It felt like a vendetta. I think that I think that the Cutler animosity didn't surprise me, but the Joan animosity did. I, I realize that they've been they've been pushing her this way all season. I just don't know that I have al- have I've always bought into it the way they want me to. I understand that she lost money because they explicitly told me that she lost money, even though I like I really hadn't remembered that up to this point. But I think I you know personally I think there's probably more there um that they could dig into I always get the feeling that that anger at Don started when he didn't stop her soon enough in the other woman um I don't and and that that's probably just something that is happening in my head and not actually within the show but I feel like they aren't doing they didn't do a great job of like having of grounding Joan's anger in something that we could definitely identify and definitely relate to it just seems like they needed someone from the original crew who didn't want Don back and Joan was the easiest way to go certainly the money is not a good enough reason I think just because of the conversation that we got with Joan and Bob last week in which she clearly cares more about uh, the intangible thing like having love rather than settling into some kind of arrangement and so that that felt like a weak excuse and when I think about the Don and Joan relationship, there hasn't really been much animosity in it throughout the series. And I, I remember specifically, I don't know what episode or season it was, but that moment when they were just at the bar having drinks together, and it was another one of those really fantastic platonic relationships. And to, to move to where we get her now, clearly having personal issues with him, I don't know, because she hasn't... Yeah, she's lost money, but she, I guess she's always just seemed kind of supportive of him, and this, it didn't come out of nowhere, because they did try to build it up to some extent, but it probably fell flatter than it should have. It's really interesting for me, interesting drink, uh, to, to think about the progression of Joan from the pilot to now, and not even just the character, but her her place in her life, because and when our previously on this week, we get a reminder of Mrs. Blankenship. And and when she died, you know, a lot of the characters found out that she had been basically a total hottie in her day, but she had remained a secretary there and just had spent her entire career there. And Joan could have been another Mrs. Blankenship. But instead, now it's the end of the 60s, and she's going to be a, a little over a millionaire, which if you had added up to now... That's a big fucking deal for a single mother in in uh, 
or just even for any person, but particularly given her situation. And it's a really significant and dramatic journey that her life has gone on. And so I'm hoping that we get some more exploration of it next season. And with, you know, with Don and and Roger, but very Don's very involved in this as well, making this happen, she's not going to have that excuse of he cost me money. And so I'm hoping that this does this animosity doesn't just get washed away because now she has money and that was the only thing she cared about. I I, I hope that it this forces her and the show to examine it in a more significant way. You know, I was furiously I aming my husband on mute and like, what is I actually said, what's up Joan's butt? Um <laughs> and he was like, Oh, you know, this public offering, blah blah blah. But and he points out that Don didn't think it was a big deal when they lost Jaguar. Yeah. And for the person who came to her afterwards and was like, don't do this, it's not worth it, like, I am sure that was a, a, a pretty significant betrayal. Like, and, and sometimes we do those things where, like, um, when the person we think is on our side, which not really many people were in the Jaguar deal with Joan, suddenly seems to not care as much as we thought, that hurts more than the people who were just never with us. Um, but they didn't do a great, a great job of reminding us or grounding that in anything we'd seen within the last 18 months. So, you know, I, um, yeah. I, 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 I stand by my original statement. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well then let's, uh, are there any other characters that you guys want to specifically talk about or should we talk about episodes or just sort of this arc where we find ourselves? Before we go into episodes, I just want to say that, that Pete is still very much a piece of shit and I appreciate that. <laughs> His piggishness and his selfishness selfishness is so entertaining. So when he walks in and he's like, oh, we haven't heard anything yet. And Jim says, about what? And he, just with such emphasis, it's like, burger chef, like clearly you should care about the things that I care about. And it should revolve around the the accounts that I'm a part of. So I, I love Pete Campbell, even though he's not somebody I'd want to be friends with in real life. Hey, Pete Campbell's got 10%. <laughs> I've got 10%. <laughs> Good for you, Pete. You son of a bitch. (laughs) No, but that's what's so fascinating. Pete is a character who has changed on the surface very, very little. And in that non-change has become from despicable to just hilarious. And I don't remember that ever happening to a character before. Like, how they can stay the same, but our relationship with them just makes them so funny now. Well, I mean, this is the same character who was going out of his way to ruin Don early in the show, and now he's Don's biggest supporter other than maybe Roger. And it's as... (laughs) So while he hasn't changed at all, I would argue that he at the same time has changed significantly. He's uh, he's still completely self-centered and a total asshole and hilarious and wonderful and yay Vincent Carthizer. I'm so glad to wash that Connor stuff out of my mouth in regards to this actor. Um, but but he's also matured in certain ways as well, in a you know, really significant way. I, I, it's, it's fascinating. I think he's one of the more significant and interesting characters outside of Don, and obviously Peggy's one of them as well, but I think I feel that way so strongly because it took so long for me to warm up to him or to feel at least connected in some way to where I can maybe empathize. So his um, his storyline in season five with Alexis Bledel's character, like that was the, the point. And that it took that long for that to happen. 
Um, I've really been paying attention to him since then, and he he's wonderful. And he's also like somewhat contradictory because he's been one of those characters who has been very supportive of the civil rights movement. He's been kind of one of the more modern voices in, in that regard, and yet he's still rather dismissive of Peggy, especially in these last few episodes. I don't know if that's necessarily limited to their history together or if it has to do with some amount of uh, retention of sexism. But, uh, yeah, a, a compelling and complicated figure is Pete Campbell. Hmm. Well, he, he references Lane as a punchline this week. God. I mean, he's horrible. Oh, the worst. <laughs> And yet he and Don are able to, the look Don gives him when he's like, oh, is Megan moving back to New York? <laughs> and Don's just like, but he catches on really well. So they're on to nonverbal communication, which is progress with Pete. That's that's definitely progress. Uh, this episode, this finale, was a, a very big spotlight for Slattery, John Slattery and Roger. Um, and so he gets a lot to do here between this episode and um, the, everything we got with uh, with what is it, uh, Marigold? I, I, I do think this is one of the better seasons of, of development for that character. Do you guys have any thoughts on, on Roger this season? I think Roger, yeah, I, I, I love that the integration of Roger into the larger plot this season, just because, you know, I think the character was always capable of it. And as entertaining as it was in the first few seasons for him to kind of just be around the fringes, having the funny asides and, and being very quippy, like I always wanted more from that character. And, um, and I realize now as they've taken the time to have the character once and for all, like work for something and go for something that this was kind of always their plan. They always wanted Roger to just be kind of floating out there at the edges because he didn't have to do anything for so much of the series run. He was just a very settled and, and, and happy to float through life, which is probably aim, which probably, uh, underlay the, the character's aimlessness, um, in in finding fulfillment for so long um but so now this 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 development is is just fantastic i'm very excited about it i was so glad to see him watching the moon landing with mona that made me i know inordinately glad <laughs> i'm still a roger joni shipper so <laughs> so i love mona but yeah i just appreciate that it takes burke cooper to say that he's not a leader for him to step up and, and be one and that was a really great moment for him and this season like you said kate has been uh has done right by roger shall we talk about uh, don's ladies a little bit we we already mentioned megan uh her that phone call i thought it was absolutely beautiful i love the the contrast in how this marriage falls apart and how the previous one did and the the, the similarities uh, like the sense of a resignation and awareness, but also the contrast as well, I thought was was pretty stark. Um, any, any thoughts on where Megan's at? Are we going to even see her in the second half of the season? That that seemed like it for me. Um, I don't think that I would need her, and it, I don't imagine that Weiner has another story for her. Well, other than getting murdered. Clearly, guys. <laughs> Duh. No. No, I just, like, I had never, I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, yeah, I don't know why we would see her, unless to get her summer clothes or her fondue pot. But um, I, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought of that. But, but Kate, I, I agree. Like, I think the dissolution of this marriage, as 
as just like slow and and if not friendly then with great affection is just a, an acknowledgement of how much better Megan knew Don um and how she just understands he's not really built for this but she doesn't hold that against him because that was a that was something she entered into with eyes wide open and um it was so moving to me and I am not the biggest Megan Draper fan but but um now talking about it I feel myself getting very very moved. It was so understated and, and so, so um, lovely that I think that, that they couldn't do much better by that relationship. And she also knows herself well enough to know that she doesn't want him to come out there. She, who she wants to be doesn't fit with him. And, uh, and, and she's been able to kind of pretend that this is all Don's doing by them being separated all this time over, you know, being bi-coastal and everything. But when he's in town, she's still not happy, really. And, and so to that knowledge of herself, I, I did really appreciate in that moment when he offers to, to come out there and, you know, do the supportive husband thing that she's been wanting him to do all season. Um, and yet she has the grace to to step back from that and, and know that that will not make either of them happy. No, you're absolutely right. And the reason probably more so than any that I think that this is a good conclusion to her series arc is that she very much kind of slides into the Anna Draper role. So I imagine years after Mad Men is done chronologically that Don probably still keeps in touch to some degree, um, but that, that that they have a complete understanding. And you're right that, that Megan knew better than anybody that Don's been involved with what she was getting into and why it has to end this way. To talk about Betty a little bit, I appreciated what they gave her to do, it was last week, right, where she was realizing that, oh, I, I would like to have my own identity, um, and and Don's not the reason I don't have my own identity. I haven't looked for that or, or expressed that before in, in her argument with Henry, but why did that completely disappear here? It felt like we were just straight back to where we had been with Betty. I think it's, I think it's just a very fleeting, it's so hard to get your own identity like, like it's not something easily done and i'm not sure betty knows at this point how one would go about that um i think she doesn't want to turn her life upside down again but for betty betty's um realizations about who she is and what she wanted and where she wanted to go were always very hard fought realizations um that came after a lot of time so i think that for her, like the victory was, you know, realizing that my husband wasn't my first husband wasn't the the whole of my problems. Like now I'm in the second marriage and my my new husband sees me in much the same way. And and that's a very scary realization to make that you are not being seen the way you would like to to put out into the universe. And and um I'm not sure that Betty's in a place where she can take that on right now, at least with how little screen time she has mm -hmm. in the back seven episodes. Um, but it, I, I think that's it. It raises an interesting question for Mad Men. Like, how many of these characters are they going to be able to get to a good place of, like, conclusion in, you know, seven episodes of TV? Yeah, this this arc felt very much unfinished. So it, it seemed like Betty was mostly here in this mid-season finale to be uh, a conduit for parallels, whether that's the relationship or the marriages uh, between Don and Francis, or uh, her being compared to Sally. Um, so that was 
kind of how I, I saw that. I don't necessarily know that I got anything else out of it. If we're talking Don's women, should we mention Meredith, who is his strength? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> how awkward was that? Oh, so wonderfully awkward. And it, it highlights Don's progression, really, because that's that is the relationship that he was having with you know at, at various points of the series, uh, just as explored as that one is this week. So I, I do appreciate, uh, if only for the comedy, but also as a as a signpost of really where he's come, how far he's come. I like it as if you look at like in was it God the pilot Peggy's pass at him because she thought. That's what she had to do. He's gotten much more graceful at turning them down. Like, <laughs> we can't do this. <laughs> that just, that's just so not Like, that leaves an opportunity for everyone to just back away gracefully. And she's like, we can't do that right now. We can't right now. You're right. Like, yeah, you're not. Okay. You're, you're, you're swell with her white rickrack <laughs> on her dress. Holy what, what crap. I, so what distracting. Can I- what can I do for you? You can get my attorney on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Well, we, we are almost out of time, but do we have any other episode? We, we've we sort of just you know given a lot of love to this episode, this finale, but are there any others uh, that we particularly want to highlight uh, or arcs or just, you know, we've already said a few moments, but what will each of you take away from this half season of Mad Men? Libby? Um, I, I will, I will take away that just that fantastic, um, that, that, the fantastic progression of Peggy, Peggy Olson, Peggy Draper, Peggy Olson, just from that frustration to kind of understanding how she does have that within herself. Um, basically episode season seven, episode six was totally my jam and I, I will carry that with me all always. Yeah. Two, six, and seven were the highlights for me. Um, what I'll probably take away most is ammunition against those people who I really hate, who say mean things about Don Draper and his repetition and his arc. Clearly, Matt Weiner has a, a long-term plan for him, and this is undoubtedly and inarguably a different Don Draper. So I, people cannot argue that anymore. So that that was specifically for me, right? Because that has been my complaint about Mad Men, and uh, certainly was going into this season. And I have to agree with you. That was that's my takeaway. As much as there are several moments that I absolutely loved, I was getting. I know people got really uh, emotional about my way. Uh, I got super emotional about uh, the, the end to this episode and uh, this finale. And yes, there. So there are several moments that were supremely affecting and effective over the course of this half season. But my biggest takeaway, like you said, Sean, is that instead of seeing Don walk the straight and narrow and have turned over a new leaf and just being this different guy, we saw him struggle and continue to change. We saw him try to make the right decisions and not always make them, but, but continue along the right path. So instead of this sort of phony oh, I'm a new man, everything's changed, which inevitably has to lead to a backslide. We got him trying to figure himself out um, with uh, Teddy Ruxpin. What's the character's name again? Uh, Rumsen. Rumsen, yes, with Rumsen. 
uh, as sort of his guide, at, the, at least at the beginning of the season. And I really, really appreciated that. And now that I have faith in you about this, Matt Weiner and all the Mad Men people, please don't, <laughs> don't screw with me on it again. Don't make him the same person. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking Mad Men, uh, Libby, with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you online? Wait, where can't they find you online? Yeah, that's true. Um, actually, they can most consistently find me at twitter.com slash Midwest Spitfire, but my work occasionally appears at NPR's Monkey C blog, um, the AV Club, and or RogerEbert.com. And, of course, you have your, your own podcast. Well, theoretically, I have my own podcast <laughs> at, <laughs> at uh, TV on the Internet, which is TV on the Internet dot podcast, podcast at blogspot. Dot com. That's the email address, so that does you no good. But tvoti.net um, is where you can find it when we do that sometimes. Excellent. Well, Libby, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.